As always, we are so thankful for the privilege it's ours to assemble this evening, for our membership here at Pippin, our visitors also that come our way from time to time. We're always thankful and happy that we have the opportunity to offer the worship that God asks for and demands. And this evening, as we've sung together and also prayed, we now come to a portion of the worship in which we cast a spotlight on a section of the Word of God. Surprising commands. We each know what the word command means. It's something, of course, that God demands that be done, as you and I refer to the Word of God at least. And we appreciate that, of course, unless there's qualifications given, these particular commands are absolute. Whether we find them in the Old Testament or New, it always helps us appreciate the nature and character of the God that we serve. Tonight we're going to give some thought to surprising commands. That is to say, commands that we do find in relation to some portion of the Word of God, but commands that ultimately will perhaps cause us to scratch our head, or at least in some sense, the way the world would often look upon it. We'll find that that's very, very interesting. You'll notice on this introductory slide, isn't it rather amazing on occasion how that certain commandments of God are elevated by at least the human family to a point where it is perceived that there are almost no exceptions to them. That is to say, these are things that are always proper and always good and they're always right. Well, tonight we're going to learn about some surprising commands. That is to say, certain occasions or incidents in which certain things will find God said, don't do this. And often that thing that he was referring to, the world would say, how can that be? It will help us appreciate something about the great value of the soul of man and the nature of how that the Word of God in every circumstance has the proper answer. And so it is as we look at the first one tonight. Would you perhaps find it interesting to consider the attribute of prayer? Isn't it true that prayer is a matter lifted so exceedingly high and it's a matter of great encouragement? I have asked you to notice at the top of that slide texts such as 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17. You probably can remember it so very swiftly. It's a very short verse, but it says, Pray without ceasing. There's an admonition then in a passage like that one, urging an attitude of prayer urging a consideration whereby prayer has a very vital and powerful attribute to it. To that, I would also ask you to recall James 5.16. As the circumstances of Elijah were presented as exhibit A, a powerful example, we're told in verse 16 that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Given that circumstance, may I ask this, would there ever then be occasions in which we would find God telling somebody on some occasion not to pray? Well, there are a few of them in the Word of God. Let's look at them one by one. And in so doing, we will learn a rather valiant lesson. The first one takes us back to the days of the children of Israel. It is true, isn't it, that even beneath the Old Testament, there was a rather powerful encouragement to speak appropriately, of course, to God. In Exodus chapter 14, the children of Israel found themselves in a very, very hard predicament. You and I remember that the Red Sea was before them. And inasmuch as, of course, they were there at the very brink of this, and the Egyptians were pursuing behind them. 
At this point, what a difficult circumstance. You can imagine the fear that overwhelmed them, and you can imagine the challenge and difficulty surrounding this moment. And yet, as you notice the verses, I would call to your attention verses 10 and following. You recall that the people were, in fact, in a state of being beside themselves. And yet Moses, it says, besought God, of course. But then something interesting is affirmed, and you'll notice in verses 14 and 15. God told Moses, stop this crying. Now ponder that a moment. They were, of course, beseeching after God, approaching Him by way of apparently strong petitions and matters, and that even included Moses. And yet God told Moses, stop this. Now you and I can appreciate the power of the moment. God then, of course, immediately thereafter said, hold out that rod. And of course, the water parted thereafter, and the people enjoyed the luxury of the freedom that they were seeking. But the point was, there was a time and a moment, and that was not the time for prayer. It was the time for action. Look at a second example. This one taken from Joshua chapter 6 and 7. On this occasion, the children of Israel had, of course, enjoyed an initial moment of crossing the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And as they had arrived there, Jericho was the first city to be overwhelmed. And that happened because they followed the command of the Lord. But you and I remember that God also gave this particular commandment in regard to the perishables, the items, if you please, in Jericho. Don't take it for personal use. Put it into the treasury of the Lord. Thus, all the spoils of Jericho belonged to God. The Israelites weren't, in fact, given privilege to take those things. And yet you and I remember that when Jericho was defeated, Achan. Achan saw a Babylonian garment and he saw some gold and silver and he took it and hid it under his tent. I'm sure he thought no one knew. You and I remember, though, in the next chapter, the God of heaven revealed that He knew because the children of Israel in the next battle were resoundingly defeated. In fact, as they battled Ai, you remember a very small military regiment was sent thinking that they wouldn't be needed. And yet, the Israelites were sent into retreat. They were beaten soundly and a number of them were killed. Joshua, in the aftermath of that, proceeded. He fell on his face before God concerned and puzzled and bewildered. How could this happen? We defeated Jericho and now we've lost to Ai. God told, Jer- God told Joshua, in effect, get up, stop this. Well, one more time, here was a person pursuing God by way of discourse, by way of you and I would pursue perhaps prayer. And God said, enough of this. Joshua, they're sin in the camp. Purge sin from the camp. That's what needs to be done. As good as prayer is, as powerful as prayer is, there's a time for something else. There's a time for the action that perhaps will be prompted by previous prayer. But here's two occasions when on those moments, first Moses and now Joshua, stop this. Let's look at another one. As you come to the next one on that slide, It brings us to the setting of the lesson text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago. Did you notice the rather directness of that language? Jeremiah chapter 11, verse number 14. In order to place its context, let me again read that verse. 
Brother Mike, as he read that a moment ago, of course, rather soundingly put it before us, but again, it read like this. Therefore, pray not thou for this people, neither lift up crying or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their trouble. Now, amazingly enough, that isn't the only time that that statement was given to Jeremiah. Three times in this book of Jeremiah, God told him, don't pray for this people. So in other words, if that was the sole focus and the full intent of the prayer of Jeremiah, he needs not to pray it. Would you ever have thought there'd be a circumstance when God would tell somebody not to pray, and yet He did it here? May you and I give some thought to the setting of that and the interesting consequence and conclusion to it. The setting of this book, again, God so often had sent His messengers, the prophets, to the children of Israel. He had sent them to Judah day and night, He says in chapter 26, they have risen up early to tell My people to rebuke them and warn them as a result of their sin. But they haven't changed. They haven't repented. They haven't, in fact, changed the lifestyle and gone back to the proper and right way. They continue in this way that's improper in My sight. Jeremiah, it'll do no good to pray for them to be saved like this. They've got to repent. And they've got to change. They've got to be motivated and take the initiative in this account themselves. And so, Jeremiah, don't pray for them like this. Doesn't that highlight that now for a couple of decades, Jeremiah had been sent to preach and to warn and to urge and to exhort and to rebuke and the people were just such that that message had fallen on deaf ears, if you please. God, through Jeremiah, says, as long as their heart is hard that way, don't pray for them. They've got to have a heart that is repentant and willing to change. And then my truth can reach them. And then they'll be open and receptive. It'll do no good to pray for them as long as their heart is like this. Doesn't that sometimes remind us about the circumstances of our life? Maybe there's a loved one or a friend or otherwise and someone who we so much would wish that things would be different with them and for them and yet so long as they keep pursuing the things they have in the ways they've done it and making the same mistakes, the same kind of attitudes and the same results are going to happen. They'll have to change first before they could appreciate the fullness and the great reward and blessing that God has for them. Our first example of the night, surprising command, don't pray for these people. What about another one? Another surprising commandment. Would you find it interesting to appreciate occasions like this? As you think about the hungry, and our heart yearns for those who are bereft of the blessings that this earth has to offer. Maybe they're bereft of sufficient food, and maybe they're bereft of other matters that are so greatly needed physically. In fact, Jesus commissioned His church to be mindful, didn't He, about the circumstances of individuals. And what about these verses that start our page? In Matthew 7, verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. A person who's hungry, didn't Jesus command us to feed them? And a person who is in fact very much in hard circumstances, shouldn't the church have a heart of compassion? Galatians 6 verse 10 says, As you have therefore opportunity, do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. 
Maybe at this point then we could imagine, would there ever be a time that God said, don't feed those that are hungry? There's another circumstance or consideration whereby this truth mustn't be forgotten. Could I ask you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? In the midst of the New Testament, we find passages, matters that present us the following set of very interesting truths and considerations. Again, to perhaps remind ourselves of the statement and the setting of that church in Thessalonica. The city of Thessalonica was a chief city of the Macedonian region. It was in fact a rather notable city because the Roman government had bestowed upon it a rather high degree of honor. It was known, of course, through that district and region as a centerpiece for the governmental affairs of Rome. But it's true, isn't it, that the congregation that had, of course, been begun there, the church of our Lord at Thessalonica, they had some challenging issues to face. Would you come to this point in chapter number 3? I suppose verse 10 is the most well-known verse of that chapter. But again it says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So here's an individual who had been or perhaps then still was a member of the church in Thessalonica. However, this individual was, shall we say, slothful, lazy. He was rather derelict in his responsibilities, not taking care of his wife or his children, not taking care to labor with his hands the thing that would be profitable and good. But yet he wants a handout from the church. I'm hungry and so are my wife and children. Paul said, I commanded you when I was there. If a man won't work, neither should he eat. So was that church in Thessalonica then to exercise caution in terms of simply providing the things that that man wouldn't? Absolutely. Did you notice again the language of verse 10? It says, when we were with you, this we commanded. This wasn't optional. It's not as if this was a take-it-or-leave-it issue this was the command of God through Paul while he was laboring amongst the church in that location. If a man won't work, then he ought not eat. Doesn't that remind us of some of the following observations? In fact, that principle is one that, isn't it true, we find that embedded throughout the fullness of the Word of God. May I call to your attention some truths of the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19.9 as well as Leviticus 23.22, under that Old Testament era, was it possible that there were people who were hungry? Absolutely. And yet God provided for them like this. He told those who raised crops, don't you harvest up near the corners of the field and if, once you've gone through it, don't go through it again. You leave that for the poor and you leave that for the strangers. But notice, they had to go through and gather it. You didn't have to pick it up and take it to them. That was left for their opportunity and for their consideration and for their production concerning that which, of course, they could avail themselves of. But you'll notice in those passages that perhaps that brings us to an example in the Old Testament of where we find that embodied. When Ruth found herself in that position, her husband had passed away, and so too had her father-in-law. And yet, as she and her mother-in-law moved back to that area in Judea, you remember that she went out and proceeded to glean in the fields. 
And she did so because that was consistent with the presentation of the Word of God, and that was her lot to provide for her and her mother-in-law. Was she supposed to work? She, she appreciated the answer to be yes. She didn't expect Boaz to bring it to her, and she didn't expect the elders of Israel to bring it to her either. Could we see in this another interesting example that would call upon a proper judgment? A person who was genuinely in need and who had done that which was appropriate, and yet the church would be expected to assist them. But suppose there's this person who simply was lazy. A person who could do better but just chooses not to. The church would be under no obligation to feed that man. If a man won't work, the Apostle Paul commanded, and so too did God, then he ought not eat. I realize that places an interesting set of thoughts, doesn't it? And it places a great responsibility upon, say, our elders and, yea, all of us. Someone comes to our congregation and asks for a benevolent matter. Our heart is touched and even compelled, and perhaps we at first provide, only to learn later that they really never needed it. They were scamming the church, for example, and yet we would appreciate how sad, how seriously sad. And yet there are those in our land who do that. Doesn't it remind us, God here says, as you and I judge the character of individuals, it would be well within the right of a congregation if a person were under this circumstance not to be helped. One by one, as you think about these things with me, isn't it amazing that what the world would perhaps say, it's never a wrong thing to help somebody. And the Bible says, are you sure? How about a third example? Perhaps another command that the world might look upon as being something that would be unthinkable. And yet God says not to do it. This particular example casts the idea before us as following. All of us are so considerable of the blessing of fellowship. We appreciate that which God has orchestrated in His church. Isn't it a fascinating thing that a group of people, men and women, boys and girls who themselves are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who honor Him and are respectful of Him, and who decide that they want to commit their lives in openness and in every way to His teaching. That fellowship spoken of in the New Testament is so sweet, isn't it? Think about the very first day the church began in Acts chapter 2. Aren't we given an immediate impression of the sweetness of the fellowship they knew? We notice, for instance, in verse 47 of that chapter, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. They were praising God, and yet many of them were in hard times, but yet they enjoyed the fellowship that brothers and sisters in Christ afforded. In verse 42 of that same chapter, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread and prayers. That early church appreciated the kind of fellowship that camaraderie and matters of the Lord Jesus Christ would bring. As you notice in Acts 5 verses 41 and 42, they of course enjoyed spending time together. And as they did this, that fellowship redounded to a closeness whereby they encouraged and supported one another. Paul later would say that we weep with those that weep and we rejoice with those that rejoice. Romans 12, verses 14 and 15. It may well be that in light of that, we even see additional examples of where Jesus so often will speak about fellowship. Hear the Great Commission with me. 
Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, verses 15 and following. And therefore there is a brotherhood, a fellowship that the Lord preached and taught. And it was His hope that all would respond and become members of that body. And yet, as you and I think then about this matter of fellowship, how often do we remember Jesus speaking of it in other ways? In Luke 14, verses 23 and following, there's a presentation of those who began to make excuse and they didn't want to come to the feast that had been prepared. Jesus didn't say, cancel the feast. He said, the Master rather said this, go out into the highways and byways and compel others to come in. The feast was so important. He wanted all that would wish to come to be there. Having said all of that as an introduction, might we now ask, would there ever be a time when the God then of heaven would say, don't fellowship? Would there be times when in fact that would not be proper, when it would not be appropriate? And the answer is yes. You and I know that some of the most direct language that we find in the New Testament is couched and housed in terms of this very matter. I have called your attention two separate chapters, but let's begin in 1 Corinthians 5. In the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians, a discussion is given in which the church in Corinth faced, of course, a very unfavorable situation. There was a man who was living in fornication, and yet the church was doing nothing about it. It was such that, in fact, they were rather glorying over it instead. They were almost taking pride in the fact that they somehow considered themselves above what this gentleman was doing. And yet Paul rather clearly affirmed to them, your approach is not a proper one. In fact, did you notice with me verse 2 of that same chapter? Ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned. There is a soul lost here and you should be overwhelmed in grief in regard to the choices he's made. Rather than glorying over this, it's a time for mourning. The verses that follow, verse 5, highlights it like this. Deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This gentleman who is living like this, you realize that he's made poor choices, he's made bad decisions, and although he's been urged to repent, he hasn't done it. You can't condone what he's doing. You've got to disfellowship him. You've got to cut off that fellowship, not because you hate him, but because you love him. You must be motivated with the hope that in the day of the Lord Jesus, he will end up, of course, in the aftermath, having repented of this, he'll be saved. Notice verse 13 of that same chapter, please. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person, Another direct commandment. This again was not left in the realm of optional decision. The church in Corinth had action that needed to be done. And as sweet and as lovely and general as Christian fellowship is, here's a time that it must be severed. Here's a time that it is not to be permitted. And therefore the church in Corinth was to understand the gravity of the moment. And they were not to extend a hand of fellowship to this one until he repented. Isn't it true as you look at the listing that Paul presents? It wasn't that that was the only sin for which this kind of behavior would be appropriate. 
Could I call to your attention, verse number 10, Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs have gone out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, no, not to eat." Their discussion, their consideration of severing that fellowship even extended to those common meals in the sense that this person is to understand that he or she has made a choice to sever themselves from the truth of God. And as you stand for the truth, you can't condone that decision they've made. This is the means by which, of course, they can hopefully be reached to understand that what they've lost is so grand and so extensive, it includes the fellowship of the church, even those that perhaps were otherwise very close. Isn't that a surprising command? And yet it's what our God has affirmed. As you come near the close of that slide with me, the urgency and the motivation again is not out of a hatred for the one, but out of love for him or her. So far, these ones we've looked at, surprising commands, I think we'd all agree, and many in our world would wholeheartedly affirm that same description. What about another one? A surprising command, a command that on first reading sounds very unusual. On this slide, might we come to this point? You and I would lift so highly the perspective of the preaching of the gospel the truth that it presents, the necessity of the human soul for it, and the urgency that goes along with the message it conveys. Would you ever anticipate a moment or a time when perhaps God would say, in some way or another, don't preach. Now's not the time, or at least now is not the moment of consideration. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 7. I'll invite you to turn there with me as we think about this last consideration. The final strange commandment or surprising command that you and I will consider this evening. Isn't it true that the Word of God lifts so highly the matter of things that are cataloged as holy? In the Old Testament on several occasions we read things like Exodus 29, 37 and Leviticus 2, verse 3. The children of Israel were expressly and rather explicitly told certain things were holy and it was not to be treated commonly. It was not, in fact, to be looked upon with trivialness, nor was it to be looked upon as an optional matter that humans could take and turn it into what they wanted. Later in the Old Testament, we find, in fact, occasions in Ezekiel where God reprimanded His people because that's what they had done. In Ezekiel 22, verse 20, the statement is given that what I have said holy, don't you ever call it common. Because that's what Israel had done. Certain things that God had orchestrated and sanctified as holy, Israel had taken and made it common. They had removed from it the holiness with which God invested it. May I ask, as you give some thought to that one, wouldn't you consider that the Bible is a rather powerful and wonderful thing of holiness? It's pure In Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
In Hebrews 4, verse number 12, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit into the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. None of us would question or even doubt in the slightest the perfection and the beauty, and yea, the holiness attached to the Word of God. Didn't God, in fact, tell ancient Israel, don't add anything to it and don't take anything from it? Deuteronomy 4 verse 2, Deuteronomy 12 verse 32. Similar matters we find even housed in the pages of the New Testament. In Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter in all the Bible, God through John with respect to that revelation clearly said, the man that would add anything to it will have added to him the plagues written in this book, and the man that would take anything from it will have his name taken out of the book of life. So either way, there's eternal loss. God's Word, as it's been given to us, is perfect. It needs no improvement. It can't be improved. And yet, if it is in fact perceived in that matter that's holy, look at some of these next verses or these next considerations. Could I ask you to think about that presentation of Matthew 7, verse number 6. In the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it like this. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, lest, or rather, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample you, or trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Each of us know very well the description presented in that verse. We understand about a hog, or a, a pigs, swine if you please, and although we might take them slop, and we might take them other things that they greatly enjoy, You'll notice in this particular passage, we would never think to put a, buck, uh, a bucket of pearls before them. They wouldn't appreciate them in the slightest. Or in regard to dogs, as the verse begins, again, we would never, I don't believe, imagine putting a diamond necklace on a dog or offering it to him as though the dog would appreciate its worth because it wouldn't. Even if we put it upon it, it wouldn't know what its worth was. And yet Jesus here, in the midst of His discussion, says something rather remarkable. By way of direct commandment, He says, Give not. And notice the subject you has understood, this is a commandment. Don't you give what's holy to the dogs. And don't you cast pearls before swine, because if you do, it says they'll trample them under their feet. They don't care what the worth is. They don't understand it. And they'll turn and rend you. The Lord, it would seem, was making a directed presentation about giving proper estimation to what's holy and the value that attaches to it. And admittedly, many in our world do not appreciate what's holy like you and I do. Things that the Word of God esteems as greatly valuable and even eternally so, often our world looks upon with disdain, often with apathy and complete indifference. You remember several occasions in the Bible when there were those who were presented that way. Remember the presentation of Luke 13 when Pilate mingled the blood of certain sacrifices? To their, to their mind, that was unthinkable. Today, you and I treasure the Lord's Supper. We look upon it with such solemn character. And it would greatly perturb and bother us if anybody were to come perhaps in our assembly, and look upon that with disdain, contempt. Doesn't that help to teach us about a lesson? Consider again preaching. 
Suppose there's an individual who has been preached to and spoken to and urged on so many occasions, perhaps even prayerfully and urgently. And yet the time comes when even upon continued approach, this person becomes defensive. And this person, in fact, has said, I've heard all I'm going to hear. And maybe in their hatred, they ultimately well up with not merely a disdain, but a hatred for that message which once they had heard. This particular passage, I'm convinced, presents before you and me a demand on our part to be very careful in our judgment. We can urge too often to the point where a person, in fact, begins to hate the message we preach. And in that sense, we're better off to find a different approach. Look at what Jesus taught in these verses. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, the Lord told His apostles in this which we often call the limited commission. He urged them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to preach to them and to admonish them. But what if they didn't receive the preaching? Jesus said to shake the dust off your feet and to go to the next city. Notice you don't stay to the point where perhaps that message will reach the point that their hatred wells up so greatly that it will even make it more difficult to reach them. That's amplified in Mark 6 verse 11 as well as in Luke 9 verse number 5. The admonition there that these places on which we appreciate preaching was taking place, he says, when they don't receive you, you need to go to another city. There are other souls in need of your attention and time. They're in need of that same saving message, which you could continue to use here, but they're not going to hear, at least at this moment. Perhaps an interesting example of that carefully is given in Acts 13, verse 51. The scene was the first missionary journey. Paul and his companions, in this case Barnabas, they had arrived at this city of Antioch, and upon coming to that place, they continued in their preaching, but then the city became so overwhelmed in disbelief and in urgency and in fact in threatenings to them that the text says they shook the dust from their feet and proceeded to the next city following a pattern that Jesus had previously said. These things you and I have considered, discussed tonight, sound like surprising commands, don't they? Perhaps meaning our world would look upon them as almost unthinkable, but yet they were, were at various places in the Word of God. What are at least one or two lessons we might take from this, and we'll use this to conclude our lesson. First of all, wouldn't it be fair to say that God's Word must be properly understood and rightly divided? It would be, in fact, a tragic thing to lift some of these verses tonight out of context. Like, don't pray, so does that mean I never ought to pray for anybody? That's not what that text taught. That was a particular circumstance where these Israelites with hardened hearts were not in position at that moment to receive the preaching of Jeremiah because they hadn't to that point at least so far. They needed to repent and they needed to change their perspective and then the preaching of Jeremiah could again flow with such pristine beauty and power. Or yet another one, perhaps. Feeding the hungry, you and I know that to take that out of context would not be right. That was given in 2 Thessalonians 3 to that circumstance in which a person had the opportunity to work but had not done so out of his own dear election of duty. 
In that case, the church must be cautious and mindful and exhortational of that one to change his viewpoint. What about that third example? That fellowship. Again, we should never lift that from its context. But when a person will not repent, a Christian who's living in sin and won't repent, the church must withdraw its fellowship. One by one, you'll notice repentance has been a, a clue that's been present in every one of these. Ancient Israel didn't repent. Don't pray for them, Jeremiah. This individual won't work, but he won't change either. Paul told the church, don't feed him. This circumstance number three, touching again the lack of repentance thereof, you'll notice the rather sternness attached to this fellowship. If that man in 1 Corinthians 5 would repent, that church received him with open arms. And that was a delightful reality in 2 Corinthians 2. Finally, what about the preaching? When there's a person whose heart is so hard that they to this point have been so rebellious against the Word of God, we've tenderly approached and we've in fact admonished ourselves and sought in the greatest ways we can. If they become very defensive and almost to the point of hatred, we might need to think carefully about our approach and maybe allow a little time to pass before we try again. You see, we're left again to think about human repentance. That seemingly has been the thing present in every one of these strange, unusual commandments. What about your heart and mind tonight? May we always allow the Word of God to touch us, to tenderly compel us, to lead us to be that which we ought to be. Because if not, some strange things then may be the case. If there's anybody in this audience tonight that would be in position that you'd wish to respond publicly... The gospel call of invitation is yours. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself is the one that extends it. And you and I are so honored to be able to receive it. Did He not say in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Is your heart without rest tonight? Is your soul displaced from the tranquility and the peace that it would like to know? Jesus has the answers. And if we could be of help to you tonight, that initial plan of salvation calls upon one and all to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, to repent of your sins, to confess His name as the Son of God, and to be baptized. Once you have done that, you then have been added to the church by the Lord Himself, and you then are able to walk with Him faithfully through life and enjoy all the blessings and benefits that, of course, is for the faithful. But tonight, if there'd be someone who has walked away from that faithfulness, you've allowed other things to come into your life and to sever you from what the Lord has in store for you. Come back to your first love, won't you? The church here would love to celebrate with you. We'd love to, in fact, approach God on your behalf in prayer, and we'd be delighted to do that. We'd urge you to come and do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.